Episode 8, Blockchain Rock, Sean Jones, thank you so much for being here with us. A former regulator, current consultant, and potential politician. Doesn't make sense, potential politician, but it's fine. Like, in the process of becoming a politician. <laughs> I think that would, uh, that, 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 that's right. Maybe at the time, uh, viewers are watching this, uh, maybe I am already then uh, elected, and maybe I'm an ex-politician. <laughs> we should and we see. also, no, there is a lot of potential in your manifesto. We'll discuss it a bit more, uh, we'll discuss it more in detail later on during this interview. But uh, let's start with your story. You have an int a very interesting story. Um, going from technology into uh, the corporate world as a CIO and then moving on to regulation, becoming a regulator and now with uh, your uh, political career which uh, we hope will be very successful as well. Uh, so, as it is custom here on Blockchain Rock, uh, please, you have the floor, tell us a bit <laughs> about yourself and uh, yeah. How you became Sean well, Jones? <laughs> I uh, I think it would be fair to say I'm probably one of the oldest um, uh, one of the oldest startup people in the world. Um, I'm 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 66 and a great grandmother, so uh, that 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 sets the scene. I think I've been in IT for 48 years, something like that. Maybe coming on soon for 49 years. I started. Uh, it, we didn't even have the term information technology then. It was data processing. I spent most of my life in um, in security and information security in, in a broad range of industries, both in the UK and overseas, and uh, also uh, time spent in the Middle East and time spent in, in Asia. And I worked in pharma and banking and transportation and various fields. And I... Uh, I guess uh, I uh, got into uh, the crypto world, um, having returned from uh, a corporate career uh, overseas. I returned to the UK. I was doing some consulting work, and I, I encountered this Bitcoin stuff. You know, it was it, it was a, it caught my attention because it was uh, a new use case for cryptography. You know, everything I'd done in my in my security career, had uh, cryptography used for data that's, uh, that was either being stored or data that was in transit. And then along comes uh, this Satoshi White paper and a new use case, uh, practical use case that just intrigued me initially. And I started getting involved with a number of um, very early um, startups in the space. And since I was the older person at meetup groups, well, I was the oldest person at any group that I ever attended. Um, they would they would come to me for for, for some uh, information, for help, for guidance, uh, and uh, because I'd done work in my in the latter part of my career in in various regulatory spaces, I uh, you know I was asked, well, what would this crypto stuff be like in uh, in relation to the regulated financial services world, and vice versa, if you like. Um, and so I suddenly found I was a, a you know a startup person. I helped a number of companies um, uh, start up. This was around two two thousand fourteen, that sort of era, fourteen fifteen, including a company that became the first uh, publicly quoted blockchain technology company, still on uh, the stock exchange in. in uh, um, it was uh, it's now called Interbits. It was called something else then. Uh, and that's on the Toronto Stock Exchange. I haven't had any direct involvement with them, but I still still have a small stake in in, in the firm. It's uh, 
it uh, um, was really very interesting because it, it, it was pre-ICO, so it went for its fundraising to, uh, to, to traditional markets, which was quite something in that time. Um, I also helped a company that was, uh, in, in its time, the first um, blockchain technology company on the UK government's uh, G Cloud uh, framework and uh, so on. So all these little bits and bobs, and then I found larger enterprise, existing enterprise, um, such as energy companies and so on, wanting to understand if they could use this technology. And then I found myself in public policy with advising politicians in Westminster and also in Brussels. In fact, I spent a lot of time um, uh, in uh, in Brussels, uh, I think I was the first person to bring round tables of regulators and um, legislators and uh, officials together in, in in a room to talk about crypto in uh, in the European Parliament. And and really from there, um, I I've been giving advice to governments and regulators around the world including at that time the government of Gibraltar and the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission. And I came here to Gibraltar uh, having architected the DLT regulatory framework, which uh, really was a pioneer. Um, you know, that was pioneering uh, legislation anywhere in the world, um, really covering um, the whole of the DLT space, not just, um, not just uh, virtual currencies. And... Uh, have been one of the regulatory team at uh, the GFSC until um, until the end of August. So now I'm uh, now I'm back. Uh, if you like, I've been um, a poacher, gamekeeper, and now I'm turned uh, poacher again, and now helping a number of um, uh, governments and regulators, supervisors around the world, particularly with reference to the relatively new. Um, regulations for anti-money laundering. So the, the sort of global standard for, for anti-money laundering in the financial services sector and is now being applied to uh, virtual asset service providers as a sort of new class of institution. Uh, I was part for a, a year or so, I was part of the FATF's policy development group and, and uh, now I find myself uh, giving advice on, on how it can be implemented by government, but also for the private sector as well on how they can react to it. So the, there you have my, my potted life story and how I come to be in this blockchain space. So I actually have a question because you, you said, as you know, that you came from an IT background and that crypto, you were involved with cryptography basically for a majority of your career in IT. Sorry, and then this new case used attracted you let's say to blockchain and the crypto industry so as uh, you i'm sure you're aware of there is this debate about uh, data protection and uh, privacy and how the gdpr frictions with the uh, blockchain in terms of you know on the one hand you have a regulation that should afford uh, individual the right to be forgotten and you know the ownership of their data and on the other you have a technology which one one where one of its strengths relies on the immutability of the information. Now, I'm just asking you that because you mentioned cryptography. Mm. So it's curious that the uh, cryptography, in a way, was and still is in a large number of cases, the solution to data privacy uh, when data is in transit and when it's stored. And on the other hand, 
it also gave birth to one of the technology which nowadays you know creates friction with the, the GDPR so what's your take on that if you have any take on that uh, well I have a number of thoughts mm -hmm. which might be relevant but I don't necessarily have any answers yeah so I think that um, blockchain in in its current state as they say at pixel time um, so this could all be different if somebody's looking at it uh, historically in five years but but as it stands at the moment, I think blockchain, uh, it, with it, with the challenges of um, uh, scalability, or with its ability to store large volumes of data, with its um, ability to, uh, or at least directly store large volumes of data, as opposed to storage Sorry, offline yeah. and, and uh, off-chain. I, um, I, I, I think that blockchain at this point in time is not well suited to storing lots of data so I I, th I don't think it, it is um, the right medium I think it's 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 a trust mechanism but it doesn't necessarily imply that every uh, every bit and byte of, of information belongs on a blockchain I think that presents uh, an, uh, very many technical challenges then there are some solutions to some of that mooted but um, I'm, I'm, I'm at this point unconvinced that that's the right place to store it. Having said that, I think that, um, you know, uh, when you talk about immutability of, of, of information and the right to be forgotten, you know, you couldn't go to your bank and say, I'd like you to forget my past transactions. Uh, and so if you're thinking about sort of transactional information that might be stored on a blockchain, um, you know, a typical use case, then um, I, I don't, I, I think... It's perfectly defensible yeah. uh, that it should not be removed. But also the framework for uh, thinking about uh, GDPR is that it applies to, uh, to data controllers, to people who have responsibility for data, uh, and, uh, and the way in which the, uh, you know, the, the circumstances under which they can uh, obtain data and hold data and under sort of the current regime might in certain circumstances and not necessarily in all circumstances, uh, in certain circumstances can be asked to remove data. Yeah, uh, and these, so these are very specific and there's this kind of um, misconception that it's a sort of broad brush I can just ask anybody to remove yeah, my data and that doesn't apply. I agree with you, yeah. So, you know, if you have consented, which you presumably have to put your transactional data somewhere and it's a characteristic of that somewhere that it sits on a blockchain rather than a bank's internal system, uh, then uh, I think you do so in the expectation that that data, that transactional data has to be held forever, potentially. Uh, and and so I don't actually see that there's quite the tension that is sometimes suggested. But I'm not saying there aren't tensions. Uh, and I I guess the law will ultimately determine how those uh, how those tensions are settled, as with all this stuff. So many people come from the point of view that the right to be forgotten is a universal right, which is always applicable. And that's not the case, especially if you only if the data controller is not relying exclusively on consent as a basis to process data, then the situation is more complicated. One thing that is interesting, actually, and um, it was mentioned during our second episode of Blockchain Rock, we had uh, the pleasure of hosting uh, Mihai Vashu from Modex, the CEO and uh, founder of Modex. And he was um, basically mentioning this idea of his, whereby blockchain actually will play in favor because, and it will play toward um, the real control 
of data or it would put the control of data in the hands of individual because as you said right now it's unthinkable to go to a bank and request you know rec demand that you're that they will forget about you and that your data will never appear or that they will not know who you are that just is not how the world works it's not how human being work and it's not how the technology we designed work hmm. but what he says is interesting he says instead of the right to be forgotten um, what blockchain could establish is uh, the right of access or the right not to access. Mm -hmm. So blockchain would be able to allow individuals to decide in the same fashion as a social network like mm -hmm. Facebook, where you can allow access, people to access your profile or not. Blockchain could be very similar in that respect and that could allow individuals to monetize their data and especially like coming from intellectual property uh, background, I think that would be a an incredible uh, step ahead, especially when it comes to copyright, royalties, distribution of royalties and rights. I think that could, could be very interesting. Yes, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree with that as, as, as a potential set of use cases around that. I mean, they've been talked about for for quite some years. I've, I've chaired roundtables that were talking about this uh, four, four plus years ago, and I think there's definitely something in that. Um, I think that there are still some challenges, there's a different set of challenges rather around that night. Um, actually, no, um, human. Um, so one of the problems, if you, you, you think about Facebook that you were talking about. Yes. So Facebook uh, from time to time ends up having to revamp, update, change its uh, policies and the controls that it makes available. Uh, to 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 its users to um, both respond to, to 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 outside pressures or, or, or customer pressure user pressure and so on um, uh, and so these these rules if you like need to be changed from time to time and the amount of control that's given to users has to be uh, recalibrated I think yeah. I would say um, in a blockchain type world you then have the governance question. In other words, how do you then introduce those uh, controls, the ability to change those controls? Um, yes, of course, you can build governance into uh, into uh, blockchains, but actually that's proven to be quite a lot more challenging, I think, than was at first thought. Um, uh, sometimes um, the incentives change the controls change if you think about the concentration of of mining for example yeah. that would be a good example a very good example of how something was intended to be a bit different than that quite a lot different than that and and has turned into a very centralized business the idea of different uh, ways in which control of uh, code the way that code is controlled uh, and there are different models. If you look at the Bitcoin model, it's quite different from the Ethereum model, but neither of those are probably perfect. Mm -hmm. And then you have those where uh, commercial interests have tried to step in and and provide control. So you have a, uh, you have all of these nuances that then have to be balanced against issues such as well, this gives users control of their own data. Yeah. Well, only to the extent that was originally thought about but not possibly as might be necessary at some future point in time. What about, I have two questions actually, in respect of what you just said. Sorry, I'm just, I'm very interested in your perspective uh, coming with this wealth of technical experience. So, 
One is, do you think the mining issue could have been addressed by putting a cap on the processing power that can be used by each uh, mining station, which I guess could be made dynamic, such as, for example, the algorithm that has to be solved so to maintain the 10-minute hmm. average time um, and se- in the Bitcoin case. And second, I'm curious about um, forks. So forks creating a fork to uh, refine, you know, the instruction mm-hmm. to provide these adjustments. Do you think that could be a viable option? Well, I mean, these are both, um, what, what, one is, is partly implemented in, in reality and the other um, has been demonstrated time and time and time again. I mean, we have various versions of Bitcoin, we have various versions of, um, of uh, ETH, uh, Ethereum. And so, of course, the answer to your question is yes. Um, are any of them particularly satisfactory? Do they in turn not come with other challenges? Um, if you imagine, for example, uh, the way that um, the direction of travel around other forms of digital assets than just um, or virtual assets other than just virtual currencies, um, you have all sorts of challenges, legal challenges around uh, custody. So you can imagine if you've got one asset and you've got certain custody arrangement in place for that asset and then it's forked and now you've got a second asset which was established off the back of the first yeah but obviously it didn't exist at the time so there's no custody arrangement in place and and so on and so forth i mean it is an absolute minefield uh, it's no accident that that bitcoin is still 10 years on in beta and and um it will take some time yet i think for all these um all these challenges of bringing of creating new paradigms to uh to to be surfaced and to be solved and there's also one other thing you know we we also need some compelling use cases for this stuff so we have a technology and to a large extent although they're you know obviously in different parts of the world there are different um use cases clearly and in parts of the world where the banking infrastructure is uh, barely existent or even in some cases non-existent um, you know that's there's clearly some advantage but at the moment we don't have global internet coverage although we do have almost universal mobile phone coverage um, but you know there are still these huge challenges to be uh, resolved technically and there are also what are we actually going to be using it for? Because some of those use cases may be um, may solve, if you like, the technical problems, or the technical problems may be solved by the use cases. I see. Now moving on to your time as a regulator, um, I'm really interested to know what was your USP, or better, what was your point of focus? Those are two different things. So, what put you in a unique position to be a regulator? And I guess every regulator will have some sort of angle which you know in which he can provide uh, in which he is very strong and can provide therefore a you know leap forward in terms of regulation and on the other end what was and what is your focus still advising governments around what do you think are the main challenges um, in terms of uh, regulate when it comes to regulating this technology and uh, where do you think regulation should be heading toward well, okay, so the first thing I, I, I need to make clear is regulators very rarely make policy yeah. uh, and never or very rarely make legislation, make law. Yeah. So um, I guess when, uh, during my time at the uh, Gibraltar Financial Services Commission, 
my role certainly in the early days was very largely policy related and advising government yes. uh, on um, on on possible strategies for for um, for uh, regulating this space and in that sense from a policy perspective there certainly were some outcomes that were sought mm-hmm. um, I think I could probably put them into uh, into just a, 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 a few subjects um, one um, there's definitely a need in most jurisdictions to ensure that stuff that involves value or money or representations of value and money um, that um, that belongs to other people uh, that, that, that there should be some controls and the right people are handling it or at least the other way around not the wrong people are handling it so uh, from that perspective it's it's really important to um, to uh, have a, an environment where uh, if you like the, the prudential aspects of, of of people's involvement of businesses involvement uh, with other people with with consumers and investors money is protected so you know um, consumer protection investor protection the second uh, is very much around a reputation, reputation of, of in, in our case, the reputation of Gibraltar, because you know, we're a small jurisdiction, we're 34,000 people or so, and um, financial services are a very significant part of our, um, of our national economy uh, and contribute a significant part, a significant amount to our, our economy, you know, to our... our, our uh, Wealth. Our wealth, yeah. yes, and wealth and the, the economy as a whole. So clearly uh, you don't want stuff happening in your jurisdiction that's going to damage its yeah. uh, reputation in the world because that has that rubs off onto everything else that you do in, 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 in the regulated space. And so clearly protecting the jurisdiction's reputation. And, and, and finally, I think uh, to... Uh, to have some economic value in itself to the jurisdiction. So in other words, that in doing this stuff, and if you like, in taking regulatory risk, the risk of regulating stuff, of attracting business here, that there should be some benefit here. Because Gibraltar has never been a place that's welcomed just brass plate companies, you know, companies to hang their their nameplate up, but actually not really contribute to the economy. Uh, and so that's that's always been part of uh, what's driven uh, financial services regulation here, and it, we felt that it was very important that all those things still be represented in the policies that we come up with. Of course, some jurisdictions um, banned it or put very close uh, restrictions on the use of, uh, in those days, just uh, virtual currencies and uh, other jurisdictions had a sort of wild west approach and many of course just sat on the fence waiting to see how this thing shaped up because you know was it going to take off or was it just um uh, uh, a very quick uh, fad shall yeah. we say uh well it clearly hasn't just been a fad the view here in gibraltar and of the government at the time was that this was a sector that should be encouraged um, it needed to have clarity into what what that meant. You know what 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 kinds of business could be attracted in, how the, it could be regulated, and we came up with a uh, a novel approach. Um, you know, 
mature industries, mature financial services businesses have existing models, they have a history, if you like, that, that you can understand and therefore write a rule book around. And here was something that was brand new that was changing almost monthly, weekly sometimes, in both technically and in new businesses that were being established out of thin air, new ideas were, were flooding in. How are you going to come up with a rule book? Because you'd be you'd be rewriting it every three months. And, and that would definitely have gone against, I, I guess, a, possibly a fourth requirement, which was to, to have regulatory certainty that businesses that were setting up could do the right thing because they knew what the right thing is. And um, businesses rarely thrive. Any business really thrives where there's uncertainty about the legitimacy of, of, of that business and how it runs. So um, we came up with a, a novel approach and what we did was we set nine regulatory principles into the statute. So the law said that certain regulatory principles had to be met. And if they were met, you could get a financial one type of financial services license. So in fact, it was our standard financial services license in that sense, but for a new category, for this category of being a DLT provider. Uh, if you were a DLT provider and you got the license, you were authorized, you had to meet these nine regulatory principles. And they covered things like the fitness and propriety of its, of its key personnel and its directors, its senior management and so on, uh, covering uh, things like adequate safeguarding of uh, customer assets. Um, uh, having adequate financial and non-financial resources and uh, things like uh, if, if the business became insolvent that there would still be sufficient capital there to wind the business down in a solvent way and so on and so forth. And essentially um, this was a new way of doing it because pretty much everything in financial services is around existing rule books. Uh, so we underpinned these nine principles with a set of guidance uh, and the guidance was non-binding, non so it wasn't statutory guidance, but it set the expectations that, uh, that the regulator had for those who sought to be licensed and were already licensed, how they needed to conduct themselves. And, and obviously that guidance became something which is a living, uh, a living reference, if you like, because that would change from time to time as the technology and businesses and the understanding of regulating this sector uh, became clearer and evolved. So this was something very new. This is pioneering. You referenced the leaving reference of the guidance, but another aspect that I think is very innovative is the fact that this DLT regulation covers those that offer the technology and not the technology itself. So it's very much dynamic enough to accommodate the iteration of blockchain. As you said, blockchain is very much a native form and no one really knows what it will look like 10 years from now. So, yeah, yeah. what we, what we, what we defined uh, was that if um, you, know, you were a business that was here in, uh, that's here in Gibraltar that um, used DLT, so used the technology, for a particular purpose, the purpose being to store or transmit value that belonged to others, so in other words, other than your own value, then uh, you would need a license. And this gave the possibility of really not having to define the nature of the asset, whether it was a currency or whether it was some token, uh, yeah, other yeah, kind of token yeah, of some yeah, particular carrot. Some uh, it really didn't matter if it if it had value and it was on a blockchain 
uh, and that value didn't actually belong to you, you were responsible for it in some way, but it wasn't actually yours, then you, you needed a license. And that allowed it to evolve, if you like, the scope in that sense, would evolve over time as new use cases were found, as new business models were created, and indeed as new blockchain technologies emerged. Now, given that you have experience in both traditional financial services and fintech, I wanted to ask you about whether you have encountered any difference in culture between these two industries. I, I think that uh, the regulated financial services world is, is already well established and people who work in it understand what it is that, that needs to be protected and, and, and what approaches need to be taken. And sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong, sometimes um, you know, uh, circumstances such as the financial uh, crisis of uh, 11 years ago had, you know, have, uh, has a, an impact that causes you to, 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 to change that. But broadly speaking, there's an understanding by those in the industry of what's expected. Um, clearly, in, in, in fintech, where there are very few people who actually come from a financial services background, certainly in, uh, not, a, um, not with the kind of responsibility for, for running financial services businesses, um, they come to it largely from a technical perspective or sometimes from a, a commercial perspective, uh, but don't necessarily understand the context that we regulators um, uh, would have in, in, in you know, what it was we were expecting, what we wanted, uh, the outcomes, I should say, that, that, that were expected. Um, so we've had, certainly here in Gibraltar, we've been very open um, to uh, dialogue with uh, those who aspire to a license, those who want to apply for a license, as well as those who are licensees, uh, to help them in, in understanding what it was that we regulators wanted to see from them. Um, it wasn't a question that if they didn't understand, we simply said no, but we tried to encourage an, a, a wider understanding, help them get there. And the particular approach that we took to licensing uh, was itself quite fairly unique here. It went through various stages through which, you know, we started with a fairly informal stage where we could get through to um, really discuss the, the business model and, and, and what might need to be done in order to bring it into the regulated space through to the formal, more formal stages. But even throughout all those stages, we would have a dialogue and even into supervision for those who, who are licensed, that dialogue continues makes us very approachable. Do you think that this dialogue can exist <clears throat> by virtue of the, of the fact that Gibraltar is quite of a contained jurisdiction? Do you see this kind of relationship between the regulator and the businesses that seek to be regulated or those that are already regulated? Can that happen elsewhere? Do you think oh, I think it can happen elsewhere and there are certainly moves in other places for that to happen. Um, Obviously, the larger the jurisdiction and the larger the number of uh, financial services businesses, you know, if you've got several thousands or tens of thousands of uh, regulated firms, the size of the entity that has to, of that organization that has to supervise them um, becomes more weighty and it becomes harder to have that kind of dialogue. You know, we built up a team of, <clears throat> at its height, about 12 people who were specialized just in this field uh, and and that 
management is very easy. We've always been a very approachable in this jurisdiction generally, not just in DLT, uh, for regulators to be very approachable to to uh, those that they license or those who want to be licensed. So, uh, you know, you've got a, a, you've got a lot of expertise, and you've got uh, people who are approachable about their expertise. Um, I don't say that's not possible elsewhere, um, but it, it's it's harder to replicate in larger jurisdictions. It has to become more formalized and and that presents some challenges. but but there are jurisdictions that that do it in other similar but other ways uh, perfectly successfully. and I think possibly we've shown them how to do that in some cases. So let's talk Xreg, your new initiative, this new business proposition. Tell us more about it. How did it start? What it is? Uh, what are your plans with it? And uh... Well, X-Reg Consulting um, is made up of X-Regulators. Um, and there are a number of us at the beginning. And we already have plans to grow that, both here in Gibraltar and outside of Gibraltar. So there are some folks who are quite likely to come on board over the next uh, over the next uh, six to 12 months as we grow the business and become more uh, more established internationally um, and I think what we found is that we uh, have a particular expertise in this field in the field of um, regulating um, uh, virtual assets and this is uh, an expertise that a lot of jurisdictions seek I mean I think it would have it would have been very difficult even for Gibraltar to have done this without bringing someone with some of that expertise here. And there are other jurisdictions now who are having to do things, partly because the rest of the world's doing it and it's it's clear it isn't a fad and it's not going away, uh, and partly driven by international um, pressure. So um, Financial Action Task Force is a good example. This is a uh, a multinational standard setter for anti-money laundering legislation, but in, its members are countries, and either it's it, direct and indirect members, about 205, 206 countries around the world, and it's effectively a, a quasi-treaty organization. So when they agree the standards, all countries have to buy into those as a baseline. Uh, and uh, these are the folks who set the standards for... Um, anti-money laundering in uh, for financial institutions and uh, even for lawyers and for other uh, for other professionals and, and other uh, types of business such as casinos for example mm -hmm. and these uh, rules have been around for for quite some time now uh, and you know both in 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 terms of uh, combating um, money laundering and uh, t uh, terrorist financing and also now financing of uh, proliferation uh, of, uh, of of the weapons of mass destruction. All of these areas are governed to a kind of universal set of rules that come from this one quasi-treaty organization. But the effect of it is that it applies to everyone, and now that everyone is including something called virtual asset service providers, which is a broad definition uh, of uh, businesses that are involved in either exchange or involved in trans the transfer of virtual assets or in some supporting activities, uh, business activities. So there's a very broad swathe of business models that are caught, and they're now within scope of these global standards. Uh, and these have to be implemented in relatively short order of time. Uh, I mean, they, they actually come in 
straight away so they came in as early as october last year at one level and in june this year at another level and countries are busy trying to figure out what they have to do to that it's basically going to mean that virtual asset service providers or vasps have to be licensed or registered everywhere in the world eventually once it's introduced into the laws of all countries and that's a mammoth task and some countries simply don't have that expertise so we felt it was good to um, make the expertise that we have as a group of people available to um, to the wider to the wider world that's available to governments in helping them set their strategy and policy around the regulation of virtual asset service providers uh, to financial supervisors or other kinds of supervisors that may be designated as the the competent authorities in their countries um, and also to to other uh, organizations you know um, multinational organizations such as uh, you could say people like the OECD and the IMF and these kind of people uh, or other NGOs around the world who have a role to play in the sort of global financial system uh, and we we, we, we we set out to help help these organizations and these bodies to understand the topic to ed help educate them and also to help them in formulating policy and strategy and implementing that Surely that must present some challenges. You're advising different government and each government would likely want to have an edge over the other. So how do you balance that? Because you want to provide the best service possible, but then there is a form of competition amongst your client. So yeah. how do you go about it? Uh, I think there are two things you have to understand. Every, every country is different. Every jurisdiction has uh, different characteristics, different legal system, different uh, risk tolerance in terms of the types of business it wants to be involved in, different kind of uh, regime. You know, some are more authoritarian, some are, uh, are more free market. Um, there's a, and, 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 you know, there's a complete spectrum and they come in every kind of mix and match that you can imagine. And, of course, different size uh, different sizes of economies and so on so they're all uh, wanting different um, different things if you like um, some look in order to uh, uh, for uh, legislation to make something more restrictive some look to use it as a platform to encourage um, new sectors and, and, and develop new business so essentially out of 200 odd countries in the world you have 200 combinations of, um, of of all these different factors that that come into play um, if you look at some of the regulation which is now going to be necessary for example around um, anti-money laundering legislation that's we've talked about it's going to be uh, fairly universal um, I uh, I would say that um, that forms a kind of baseline so that's a well we have to have that baseline that's a standard uh, but what we do with that on top of it do we use it to be restrictive do we use it to be encouraging at the baseline no country wants to um, wants to create opportunities for what amounts to regulatory arbitrage the opportunity to pit one jurisdiction off against another all that happens is that you know the, the bad stuff when it happens falls between it, where the cracks are um, so that's what really those baselines are there to 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 protect against but above that everything is everything is possible so you look at 
each jurisdiction, at its um, at its legal system, at who the you know its political system, what it wants to get from uh, regulation, how other aspects of financial services function in that jurisdiction, uh, and then you formulate uh, policy and strategy suggestions around those unique. So it's really a case by case basis. It's far more intricate and complex. Uh, than just thinking you can come up with a one-size-fits-all for crypto regulation around the world. Um, it just isn't that. Which is what makes it interesting. I guess, well, it makes it, it keep, keeps me busy. <laughs> and now, talking about busy, your latest endeavor, uh, joining a political party and uh, going for the elections. Could you comment a little bit about that, about your political ambition, about what motivated you to uh, you know, focus on this uh, on this new adventure if you want well i guess i um i i i've made gibraltar my home i feel very at home here and i feel very comfortable here gibraltar's been very good and kind to me very welcoming to me uh, and i feel at 66 before um you know i go completely gaga i ought to try and uh, give something give something back to the community and give something um uh, that I hope will leave Gibraltar in a, in a better place. Um, um, I, I guess that's the motivation. I'm far too old now to uh, seek the levers of power. I think um, I can see a situation where I probably have um, more to give and more to contribute to, to, to society here. And politically, I think there are opportunities to, to do just that. So, yes, I'm standing uh, as a candidate for Together Gibraltar, um, a relatively new party here in Gibraltar that uh, is uh, uh, fielding 10 candidates for our, uh, for our parliament. Um, for those of your viewers and listeners who aren't aware, Gibraltar is a, a British overseas territory, um, but it is uh, effectively, um, uh, uh, to all intents and purposes, self-governing. We have our own laws, we have our own taxes, we have our own government, we have our own parliament. Uh, we are, for the time being, I think as, uh, as I said before, at pixel time, we're still part of the European Union. Uh, 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 and so, um, you know, we but we we determine most of of what goes on here in Gibraltar and so um you know we we have a a, a, legis, a, a legislature that uh, that sets its uh, sets sets the laws here and it's that that I'm standing for that election is going to be on the 17th of uh, October so depending when people watch this i i may maybe a uh, an aspiring politician or an ex aspiring politician <laughs> We wish you all the best for that. Thank I you. I guess we can wrap the episode here. Thank you so much for coming on Blockchain. My pleasure. Road. So we spoke about your story. We spoke about your involvement in the private sector as, an, uh, as a CIO, your movement from uh, being uh, technologically focused on the technical aspects of the industry to the regulatory one, your work as a regulator in Gibraltar and your outstanding contribution. Um, we were able to speak about your both of your new endeavor, X-Reg, um, consulting, correct? X-Ray Consulting, consulting. yes. Little X, little capital <laughs> R-E-G. 
<laughs> we'll link it. We'll put, we'll put uh, the link on the website. It's uh, very yeah. simple. It's xreg.consulting. It's hard to forget. <laughs> and, uh, and about uh, your uh, political ambition. Thank you so, so much again for coming. My pleasure. Uh, we hope to have you again as a politician uh, next time, hopefully. And uh, yeah, not much else to say. Thank you very much, Henri. Thank you for Thanks inviting for coming. me. That's all. Thanks all.